Well, last week we looked at the first part of Hebrews chapter 9, where the author of the book of Hebrews uses the tabernacle system of worship in the Old Testament as a picture of all that Christ has done in his ministry as the new and better high priest and the new and better sacrifice. And we talked about that system as the old liturgy, an old system of worship that includes a set sequence of physical objects and actions and movements and words used to approach God. And with the coming of Christ, He has replaced that old system with His person and with His work, giving us a new and better and permanent way to approach God. Christ is the new liturgy. As we saw last week, He is a new liturgy that frees us from our guilt in a way that the old liturgy could only picture for us, but actually never accomplish in itself. And this week, our passage continues many of the same themes. The writer to the Hebrews, and it gets kind of tiring to constantly say the writer to the Hebrews. Sometimes I wish for simplicity. We just have another ecumenical council and vote to call him Bob or something like that. But we don't know what his name was, so we'll just keep saying the writer to the Hebrews. In our passage this morning, he continues to use the old tabernacle system of worship, to teach us more about what Christ has done, not just to give us a new liturgy, but a lasting new covenant. Young Christians, young theologians, I have one thought that I want you to think about this morning, or maybe discuss with your family later today, and it might kind of sound like the question that I asked last week, but it's a little different. Last week I asked you the question, what has God done to heal you of your guilt? But this week I want you to think about, what are some of the ways that you try to handle your guilt on your own? What are some of the ways that you try, some of the strategies you try to deal with or handle or avoid or ignore your guilt on your own? And what would God have us do instead? This is the good news of Jesus. A good news that reaches all the way from the covenants and promises and worship delivered to God's people in the Old Testament all the way to Dallas, Texas in the summer of 2014. We find it this morning in Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. Give us the strength and power by your Holy Spirit to understand your word, to love your word, that it might shape us, that it might shape our hearts and minds, and that we may go out applying it and obeying it with heart and mind and soul and body. Do these things for us, for your own glory and for our good. In the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Well, around the year 150 A.D., a happy church member in the church of Rome became quite unhappy. It seemed to him that he wasn't as appreciated as much anymore by the church leaders. Many had become concerned about his doctrine, about his attitude towards proper church authority, and about his constant insistence that he was right about what the Bible was teaching while they were wrong. Eventually things became so bad that he was forced to leave the church at Rome. And so the man called Martian, set off to found his own church. And it was a church that was going to grow large and strong and rival the teachings of the apostolic and orthodox church for a couple of hundred years. Martian's theology was dualistic, meaning that he sought to oppose most elements of his beliefs against each other in two separate categories. For Martian, the God who created this world the world that you and I live in, the Jewish God, was a pitiless God. A God who required bloody sacrifices, who led his people into countless battles, and who slaughtered whole ethnic groups. He was a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. But far above and far better than the vindictive and downright mean God was the higher God, the greater God, the greatest God, the supreme God, above all things and above all other powers. And it's this God that is, that is loving and peaceful and infinitely good. This God requires nothing of us, but rather gives us everything freely, including salvation. This God does not demand obedience, but rather wants to be loved. And where did Martian believe that he found this God in the scriptures? He thought he found him in the letters of Paul and in the Gospel of Luke. 
And so Martian did a very reasonable thing. He did a very reasonable thing to his leather-bound ESV study Bible. He, he went into the kitchen and he took out a meat cleaver from the drawer and he chopped the Old Testament and much of the New Testament from his Bible. He only left a little part of Luke, some of Luke, and parts of Paul's letters minus all the parts where they quote from the Old Testament. And then he built a rival church on this new view of what the Christian canon, the Christian scriptures, ought to be. And since then, and even before that point, to be honest, the church at large has always had to answer the question, how are we going to approach the Old Testament? What are we going to do with so much Jewish history when the church is largely composed of Gentiles? What are we going to do with so much legal and civil code for a theocratic nation that hasn't existed since A.D. 70? What are we going to do with so much prophecy, much of which is hard to understand, and so much poetry, none of which even rhymes, and so much more material that doesn't even mention Jesus and His New Testament church in explicit ways? And the answer is found in so many places in the New Testament, including Jesus' own teaching of his disciples in Luke, which is ironic. But in the letter to the Hebrews, we find a true master of the art. The writer to the Hebrews, like all sound Christian theologians before him and after him, he unashamedly rises to his feet and he points to the Old Testament and he says, that's our Bible. That's our book. It belongs to the church and you can't understand it rightly or read it properly until you see it through the lenses of Jesus' person, who he is, and Jesus' work, what he's done. And so we find the writer once again in our passage this morning doing what he has done since the opening verses of chapter 1, treating the Old Testament as the most Christian of scriptures and preaching Jesus to us from it. And he once again takes up the imagery of the old liturgy, the tabernacle system of worship in our passage again this morning. With the word, therefore, he begins in verse 15 by calling to our attention all that he has said in chapter 9 so far, so far, which we covered last week. Because Jesus is the new high priest who didn't enter an earthly tabernacle, but entered the very literal presence of God himself in heaven. Because Jesus is a better sacrifice, not needing to be offered again and again like the Old Testament bulls and goats, but only once. His blood being sprinkled on the altar in heaven because all these things are true. He is a mediator of a new covenant. And he is a perfect mediator. A go-between, which is what a mediator is. One who represents us before God because he's human. And one who represents God in all of his promised blessings to us because he's also God. And then the writer helps us to understand the nature of a covenant running through verse 22. But before we look at those verses, it might be helpful to remind ourselves of what a covenant is. One of the best descriptions that I've ever heard of 
our covenant comes from a theologian by the name of O. Palmer Robertson. Some of you may have heard of him or you may own his book or heard of his book, The Christ of the Covenants. And Robertson says in that book that a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. It's a bond always initiated by our sovereign God, made up of a series of promises that God makes to His people, binding God to them and binding them to God. But it's made in blood, meaning that life is always at stake in the making of a covenant. This was true even of God's covenant with Adam and Eve in Genesis. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Life is at stake. In God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, animals were sacrificed to solemnize the promises. And animal sacrifices were again at the center of the covenant with Moses called the Old Covenant, what we've been calling the Old Liturgy since last week and this week. And every sacrifice made in the Old Testament was a promise of payment, but not payment itself. In fact, here in our passage, the author takes us on another short tour of a very important Old Testament sacrificial service to make his point. He refers back to the Mosaic Covenant ceremony made in chapter, Exodus chapter 24, Exodus 24, where Moses first inaugurates the covenant with the people, the children of Israel, at Mount Sinai. And the writer of the Hebrews reminds us of all the sacred objects of the old liturgy that Moses sprinkled with blood at this ceremony. And reminds us of all those objects in verses 19 and 21 in our chapter. And he finishes in verse 22 by telling us that under the law, almost everything is to be purified with blood. But the the writer reminds us that the sacrifices of this old liturgy under Moses were not enough to cleanse from sin. And so another death was necessary. And this death was so powerful as to redeem all those that came before, all those that were members of that old liturgy. The full redemption price for all sin committed, not just by us and not just by the New Testament church, but by all of God's people before Christ was paid by Christ. And in God's last and final covenant with His people, the new covenant, blood and death are again at the center of it. And the author uses the legal illustration of a last will and testament in verses 16 and 17, to make his point. For where where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And in the Greek, which is the original language behind the New Testament, it's clear that the author is making kind of a pun on the word translated covenant in verse 15 and the word translated will in verses 16 and 17. But whether you translate it covenant or will, the Greek word is the same for both. Diophake, which comprehensively means a settlement. A settlement. 
It is a graciously bestowed settlement upon God's people as a means of bringing them into a special relationship with himself. In this picture we see, this picture of the last will and testament, we see that Christ is both the testator, the one who's promising the inheritance, and then he's the executor of the estate, the mediator, the surety. And the author's point is simply this. There is no interfering with the promised inheritance of your salvation. Just as there is no way to interfere with the written and signed will of a dead person. Who will change the mind of a dead person when that person has chosen to graciously give his inheritance to a chosen beloved? No one. Since we all know that that's impossible, then think about how impossible it is to change the mind, not just of the one who died, but the one who died and then came back from death to share the inheritance with his beloved forever. Can anyone hope to change the mind of such a one? Of course not. And that is how securely you're loved. That is how secure your future hope is. In the film entitled Get Low, Felix Bush is an old man that everyone in town is afraid of. He had been living as a hermit in his withdrawn house in the woods for 40 years. And all the usual legends and myths and horror stories of who he was and what he had done had circled in the town for decades. But suddenly, out of the blue, one morning, an announcement shows up in the town newspaper inviting the whole town to Felix Bush's funeral. And as an extra incentive, it's advertised that at the funeral, there will be a raffle. And the person with a winning ticket is going to inherit Bush's considerable estate and property. But what shocks everyone even more is seeing Felix every day in town as he buys new clothes and he shaves his ultra-long beard and he prepares himself in all sorts of ways for the day. Because the town thinks that funerals are supposed to be for dead people. But Felix has other plans. When the day arrives, there's no mourning or grieving, but instead kind of the carnival-like atmosphere of a celebration... And although there is a pastor present, he doesn't say much because Felix quickly takes the stage and the microphone and then he turns to the audience and he asks them to tell him what they think of him. All the tall tales they've heard, the opinions they've all secretly or not so secretly held about his reputation. And it becomes alarmingly clear to Felix's friends that this whole setup has turned a funeral on its head passing of an inheritance without a death. A crowd gathered not to remember and appreciate the blessings and legacy that they've all received from the worthwhile life of a cherished member of the community, but instead a crowd gathered to further validate this very alive man for the sake of satisfying his own ego. And not just his ego, but to satisfy to take care of, to deal with his own guilt. Because you see, 
over 40 years before, Felix had been involved in a very scandalous affair with a married woman of the town. And it was an affair that had ended in her mysterious death and the death of her abusive husband in a fire. And although Felix hadn't started the fire or murdered anyone, he had carried his guilt around for 40 years over his adultery and over creating the circumstances that had led to the fire. He had ostracized himself, cut himself off from society in an attempt to atone, to make up for his own guilt. But it hadn't worked. He had concocted this faith, this fake funeral scheme to try to assuage his guilt in the court of public opinion, hoping to hear enough nice things said about him by others to feel good about himself, hoping to set the record straight, but it wasn't working either. And since I've already spoiled the movie for you, I'll just go ahead and spoil it for you properly by telling you that in the end, Felix gets it. He finally learns how to get low, to humble himself. He realizes that the only way to be washed of his guilt is to quit the shenanigans and all the shortcuts that he had been trying. And to admit his shame before the whole town and to ask forgiveness from many that had been hurt as a result. And through the writer of the Hebrews, the Lord is saying to us, at the center of the new covenant, at the center of the new liturgy that we practice every week as a church, is not a fake funeral, but a real and bloody death. And so Jesus says to us, every time we have the Lord's table, this is the new covenant in my blood. At the center of the new liturgy is not someone who is looking for validation from the crowds, from social media and opinion polls, but one who gives himself to you sacrificially, not waiting around to find out how you might feel about him or whether you like him or whether you'd vote for him. And at the center of the new liturgy is not an inheritance, not a set of promises, not a legacy of unending blessings that is just kind of haphazardly and randomly scattered around to anyone lucky enough to stumble upon it. Rather, God the Father has very purposefully and very deliberately agreed with God the Son that the Father would redeem you would rescue you, would share his inheritance with you, and then the Son gave his life to make it happen. Which is why verse 15 says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. It's not a raffle. It's deliberate. And this inheritance is purely a matter of grace, a gift bestowed. But grace doesn't mean without cost. It means without cost to us. It is gracious and free to the recipients, but it is most costly to the giver. And its cost is further explained in verses 25 and 26. The reason why Christ's blood was sufficient to cleanse all sin by being offered only once 
was because its worth so far surpassed that of endless bulls and goats as to make that comparison truly laughable. Quantity does not always convey quality. The two pennies given at the temple by the poor widow were far more than all the hundred dollar bills dropped in by the Pharisees, Jesus said. For a father who's been gone a lot, taking your son fishing can be worth a lot more than a truck full of presents. On a wedding day, the two rings that are exchanged and slipped on the troubling fingers are worth far more than all the houses and the cars and the furnishings and the vacations put together that the couple may experience in the future. And although we might sometimes wonder if parts of our animal crazed society still believe it, the truth is human blood always trumps animal blood. And divine blood can remake a universe. And that's his point. I want to say to those of you who might be with us this morning but are still skeptical of Christianity... First of all, we're glad you're here. You don't have to believe like us to sit with us or to be loved and welcomed by us. And I mean that sincerely and truly. You should feel free to check out Christianity with us for as long as you want. But at the same time, you should hear the call from this passage this morning. Along with the rest of us, who still need to hear the call from this passage this morning, to stop looking to shortcuts to dealing with your guilt. What others have to say about your lifestyle, whether you're a relatively kind person, a well-meaning person, a giving person, doesn't really matter. You're not a perfect person. And you know it. Because if you were, you wouldn't have your guilt. Guilt isn't a misplaced hormone or a psychological disease. It's too universally experienced to be that. Guilt is the part of you and the part of me that still reflects the image of the Creator who made us, telling us that we deserve judgment for our imperfections for falling short of the holiness and righteousness of our wonderful Maker. And the question is not, are you guilty? Am I guilty? The first question is not even, what are you going to do about your guilt? The first question is, what has He, God, done about your guilt? And the answer is in our passage this morning. The Lord Jesus takes on your guilt. He has worn your guilt like a filthy garment, and He has walked the ancient path of the high priests of Israel, not in a tent pitched in the middle of a desert somewhere, but into the very presence of God. And He has then presented not the dirty blood of animals before His Father, but the pure blood of His own veins. Blood that never becomes dirty, no matter how many sinners it washes. 
And now, knowing that, hearing that, you're called to believe. You're called to believe. You're called to receive His work as though it were yours, as a free gift. You're called to get low, to humble yourself, and to leave the shortcuts and the strategies and the techniques that you've developed to ignore your guilt or to explain it away or to hide it or to justify it. And you're called to come to the Father through the cross. But our passage doesn't leave us with a dead mediator, a dead Savior. Because as Christians have confessed for 2,000 years, a dead Savior is no Savior at all. Instead, the writer gives to his church the comparison of verses 27 to 28. Just as it is appointed for human beings to die once, and following that, judgment so also Christ was offered up as a sacrifice for, his, for sin of His people just once. But He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. Death didn't win. But He rose again. He rose again on the third day. He rose again on Easter Sunday. And it is also appointed for Him to return again. And when He does, church... See this here. When He does, He doesn't come to deal with our sins. He's already done that. He doesn't come to point out failures, and He doesn't come to point out imperfections. All of that was dealt with at His first coming. He comes to save His people. He comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Those who say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This is hope that should be reveled in. Under the old liturgy, on the Day of Atonement, the Israelites would wait and they would watch expectantly from outside the tabernacle for the high priest to emerge after presenting the blood in the sanctuary. His appearance from the Holy of Holies was an especially welcome sight. The sacrifice has been made. It's been accepted. And so also we wait for our Savior to reappear from the Holy of Holies in heaven to confirm what our faith, what our hope has been holding on to through all the difficulties and all the losses and all the sufferings and all the doubts. And so let us revel while we wait. Let us revel in the joy of having our guilt and our fear cleansed while we wait. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that our guilt before you is a settled issue. It's a settled issue today. It's a settled issue on the day your Son returns. Because it was a settled issue when your Son gave His life for us, and when your Son rose again three days later. And so I pray, Father, for those of us who are here, who have heard this word from Hebrews 9, who have heard your word, that you would unburden us from our guilt. Untie the burdens of guilt that we carry. Our guilt over our sins, our imperfections. 
our true guilt over not meeting your standards and our false guilt over not meeting our own. Just wash it and cleanse it all away because we are found in Christ. He took us by the hand and led us through the tabernacle, exchanging our dirty clothes for his white robes. And so we stand before you clothed in his righteousness. Let us revel in that joy. Do that for us today and do that for us the rest of this week, we ask and pray. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.